All right, so why don't we stand for the reading of God's word this morning? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us so purely, so completely, so openly, so unashamedly. We are humbled and we are filled with joy because of your love. Help me to describe it this morning. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, you may be seated. Paul is writing a letter to Christians who are living in Rome, the capital city of the world's largest empire up to that time. More than a million people packed into 10 square miles. It's important to understand that just by believing the gospel, these Roman citizens are in violation of Roman law and are being mercilessly persecuted. To be clear, they had accepted the truth that Jesus was the Son of God, that his death atoned for their sins, and that three days later, he was raised from the dead. And at this point in time, there are still many living witnesses affirming these events. And by putting their faith and their loyalty in Christ, They rejected the pantheon of gods and goddesses that constituted the official religion of the Roman Empire. And also, they refused to pray to Caesar or to make offerings or sacrifices to him as the custom of Roman culture was to revere Caesar as a god with absolute power and authority over the empire. Basically, being a Christian Anywhere in the empire of Rome, but especially in Rome, meant that you were suspected of being a traitor. Keep in mind, Nero is emperor, infamously known as the emperor who fiddled as Rome burned. He was a persecutor of Christians, known for having captured Christians, dipping them in oil, and setting them on fire in his garden at night as a source of light. Romans is written to those who find themselves living in the heart of the beast. And when it comes to beatings and imprisonments, verbal threats, and other forms of persecution, Paul is already an experienced veteran. 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once, I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and I have often 
gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for the churches. Paul has truly experienced brutal persecution for his faith. But through all of this, Paul says, I am not ashamed. And before we can really appreciate that statement, we got to understand what it means to be ashamed. So let me give you the definition of a 10-year-old Mikey, okay? Picture me at 10 years old. Oh. I'm sitting at the dinner table with Michelle and with mom and dad, and the telephone rings. And mom gets up, and she walks over to pick it up, and we all kind of watch mom, curiosity, who's calling us. Hello? Oh, yes, he's here. Just a moment. Mikey, it's for you. Time stops. Me? Nobody calls me. I'm 10. It's always for dad or mom or it's one of Michelle's friends. Who is it? It's Amber from school. Suddenly, all six eyes of my family (laughs) gleam with evil delight, and they're shooting back and forth, wordless signals across the table. Slowly, I get up, and I march towards the telephone like a man walking to the guillotine. Hi, what do you want? I made the conversation as short, as informational as possible, to the point of being rude. In spite of my best efforts, my fate was inevitable. Before my bottom could hit the chair at the dinner table, the interrogation began. How is Amber? What did Amber want? My face must have been the color of beets, but I would not confess to anything beyond one-word answers. Now, Mom was a teacher at the school, and she would supply all of the intel. Oh, she's that beautiful little blonde girl at school. Oh, she's such a nice girl. And as innocent as the truth was, it just made me squirm that much more as they hungrily feasted on every little fact. Oh, really? Does Mikey like Amber? You could have cooked an egg on my face. I was absolutely ashamed of my feelings for Amber. I didn't want anyone to know, especially my family. Why? Because have you met my dad? (laughs) If he finds your hot button, he's going to hit it repeatedly with a hammer till it breaks off. This is called Sociola persecution. And I have been persecuted. So I didn't tell my family how I felt about Amber because I was ashamed and because I feared persecution. Now, let's look at a more grown-up version of this word. The word that Paul uses, ashamed, is epi-eschenomai. Epi, meaning to intensify, and eschino, meaning disgrace. It has the connotation that you are being singled out because you have misplaced your confidence. You have misplaced your support. You are the laughing stock, and you are publicly humiliated. You get handed the Darwin Award for being dumber than a box of rocks, a chowderhead, a mouth breather. You get the idea, right? Ashamed in Webster's is an adjective that means to feel inferior, to feel unworthy, to feel shame and guilt and remorse because you blew it, 
because you screwed up. And here Paul is saying, I am none of that. I am not ashamed. But what is he not ashamed of? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, so Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel. What does that mean? What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus born of a virgin. Jesus is the joy of Christmas that we will celebrate. You know, we focus at Christmas time a lot on the toys and the goodies and the good things that God gives us, but the point of Jesus coming was to reboot humanity And by this, I mean the Bible says that in Christ, you and I are new creation, spiritually something different than we were before, a fresh start, not just to make improvements to your life, but to give you a whole new way of living, a new and different set of priorities and values, to make something out of you that you weren't before and you could never be without Jesus to offer a true and eternal, a once and for all reconciliation of man to God. And God is asking unequivocally for your absolute and complete trust. But in sending Jesus as a baby, God shows us that he's willing to risk trusting us with his most precious gift. Jesus lived the only sinless life. Jesus never lied. Jesus never acted selfishly. Jesus never held a grudge. Jesus never used foul language. Jesus never took something that didn't belong to him. Jesus never did anything that was contrary to the will of God. In Hebrews we read, that Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. He is described as the high priest who meets our need, one who is holy and blameless and pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, and is unblemished. Even Peter, who knew Jesus very well, declared that he has committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. The apostle John tells us, in him is no sin. And Paul confirms for us that Jesus had no sin. Even Jesus asked those around him, can any of you prove me guilty of a sin? 
Luke 23 says that a Roman centurion guard who was there at the crucifixion, he said that Jesus was a righteous man. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Jesus' personal integrity and his holiness was born out of his love and devotion to the Father. But in addition, he understood that in order to atone for your sins and for mine, he would need to be able to present himself as a spotless sacrifice to fulfill the demands of God's law. Jesus was crucified, and he willingly took upon himself the sins of the world. Jesus' cousin, John, he had left the priesthood, and he went out into the wilderness to become an open-air preacher. And when he saw Jesus coming to be baptized, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the Jews, God's chosen race. He takes away the sins of a few lucky ones. John the Baptist said that Jesus takes away the sins of the world. John 3.16 begins, For God so loved the world. 1 John 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. John chapter 6, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look, I'm not preaching universalism this morning. Not everyone is saved and going to heaven because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The salvation of everyone was not immediately applied. It was purchased. All persons were made salvable, but not all persons were automatically saved. The gift is made possible by our Savior, but it must be received by the sinner. John chapter 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In short, left to our own devices, you and I are on a trajectory straight towards eternal hell. But only those who accept Christ's payment for their sins will be saved from it. Jesus makes it possible for you to enter heaven. And I can say this this morning on the authority of God's word that for every person in this room or every person listening to my voice on a podcast or on a recording, it is God's heart and it is his intention for you specifically to receive forgiveness and salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. If your heart is still beating, your eternal fate is not yet sealed. Today, you can humble yourself. You can repent. You can cry out for forgiveness and receive the grace of God and not be rejected. 
Now, some would argue with me that the only ones who can be saved are the ones that God draws. Okay, I agree with that. And I would ask, who then is God drawing? Listen to the words of Christ. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Are you a person? This is an interactive uh, morning this morning. Are you a person? Are you sure? Jesus is drawing you. You don't have to go on another day wrestling with your past. You don't have to live under the weight of your sins and regrets or under the dark cloud of a guilty conscience. You don't have to resign yourself to an eternity in hell separated from God forever. Today, salvation and freedom and joy and hope and heaven can be yours. It can begin in you all because of Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius and every other religious leader and thinker lies decaying in their graves. But Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. (laughs) And that excitement that you feel when you hear those words spoken or you think about the fact that Jesus is alive is the miracle of the Holy Spirit confirming to your heart, your heart that indeed that is true. It is a fact. E.M. Blakelock, professor of classics at Auckland University, said this, and I quote, I claim to be a historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history, end quote. The resurrection of Jesus is a testimony to the resurrection of human beings. Unlike all other religions, Christianity alone possesses a founder who transcends death and who promises that all of his followers will do the same. Death will not get the final say because of the resurrection of Jesus. John chapter 11, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. We don't worship a philosophy or an idea or a set of religious rules. We worship a living person, the man, Christ Jesus. We don't receive help and strength from a nameless, faceless force that permeates the galaxy. No, we receive it from a man who has been through the worst that this world could ever throw at him, and he overcame it all. Our help comes from a living person. It comes from Jesus. It was Jesus himself who stopped Paul when he was on his way to persecute Christians. Jesus knows every difficulty that you face, and he will get involved. Can anyone here give me an amen? Amen. The resurrection of Jesus means we can have confidence in our relationship with God. We aren't under condemnation any longer. We don't have to question or doubt because we place our hope and our faith in Jesus who covers our imperfections with his righteousness. 
Every once in a while, I get the pleasure of getting a phone call from my grandma. She's in another part of the United States, and she's in a full-time nursing facility, and she's always sure to tell me when she calls me at the end of the phone call that she's praying for me. It makes me feel good because I know that grandma is a godly woman. She's a woman who knows how to get a hold of God. Does anyone here have a grandma like that? Makes you feel good. But listen, Jesus himself is praying for you. Does it get any better than that? Romans 8, who then is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Listen, that's the gospel. It's pure, it's simple. And Paul wasn't ashamed of it. And I'm not ashamed of it. It's beautiful. There's nothing more wonderful than that truth. And there is nothing to feel shame over. Now let me say this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But sometimes I'm ashamed of Christian brothers and sisters like Westboro Baptist Church. You know what I mean? Christians who gossip or who divide people within the church or do shady business deals or, you know, on and on and on. I'm ashamed of people sometimes who say that they're disciples of Jesus, but then their behavior doesn't demonstrate a devotion to his character or to him. So maybe sometimes you get a little tongue-tied or you get embarrassed to talk about your faith because you're afraid that someone's going to associate you, lump you in with a group of people that you might be embarrassed by. Listen, stick to the Word of God. Stick to Jesus. Stick to the truth. And the truth is, the gospel saves. And this is the gospel. And Paul is not ashamed of it. And why does Paul say that he's not ashamed of it? He says, I'm not ashamed because it is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. And when Paul is writing that word power, it's the Greek word dunamis. In our English, it's the root of the word dynamite. It is God's explosive power that destroys anything that tries to get in the way of his objectives. It is his explosive power propelling you over and through every trial and obstacle in life. Those who put their faith in Jesus have accesses to resources of power greater than a million sons. And this power is available to everyone who will place their trust in Jesus. And Paul makes it clear that all men are freely offered the gospel, irrespective of their nationality or their religion or their education or their status in life. Those who trust in the gospel of God concerning his son will experience the power of God for salvation. The offer of transforming power is extended to everyone in general and to you specifically. God himself has invited you to become his child and to live with him in heaven forever. And that's not the sort of invitation that you get in the mail and you throw in the garbage with the junk mail. That's not the sort of invitation that you just delay and procrastinate on RSVPing for. Because of whom this invitation is from, and because of what it cost 
to put that invitation in your hand. There is a sense of priority. There is a sense of urgency about it. Jesus said, don't you have a saying? It's still four months till the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They're white for the harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So Jesus, maybe if he was saying this to us today, it might be something like this. Have you ever walked into a store to buy something, and you were looking to make a purchase, and you couldn't find anyone working in the store to help you? Been there? Home Depot, anybody? Lowe's? Whatever? You wander around for an hour, you can't find anybody to answer your question. You come with money, you come with interest, you have a desire to buy something that you need, and you can't find anyone who will help you seal the deal to make the purchase. So what do you do? You leave. You find another store, or you look it up on the internet. Or worse, you didn't get that day what you needed to get, and so the problem at home continues, whether it's a leaky faucet or a a door hinge that needs to be replaced or whatever. And so here's what I'm saying. The gospel is like a store, and it has everything in it that people need to be reconciled to God to have abundant life, to have a life of joy and purpose and meaning, to have an incredible and active relationship with the creator of the universe who is crazy in love with you. And isn't that awesome? And so Jesus gives you and me the keys to the store, and he says, tell everyone about me, and people wander in. And I'm not talking this morning here about 2620 Calusa Highway. I'm talking about you. People encounter you They encounter your life. They are coming into your store. And they're wandering down the aisles of your life. And they're looking to take home something they can believe in. Something they can put their faith in. They're looking for a relationship with Jesus. And they have questions. And they want answers. But are we on break in the back somewhere? Are we expecting the full-time pastor or the full-time missionary to do the work? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Do we think, well, well, somebody else can tell them. You know, they could look it up on the internet. They could watch a preacher on TV. Here's the truth. God sent you. They're in your store. And now, in our backyard, I've planted several fruit trees and a variety of different grapevines in our backyard, and unfortunately, because of my own busyness and choices in the course of this year, I let the season pass before I harvested all the grapes. So recently, I spent the better part of a couple of days going out there and cutting down the grapes and and collecting the ones that were good, big bags of grapes that I wound up giving to my mom to make grape jelly with. How's that coming, Mom? (laughs) Now, in spite of the large haul that I got, as I was working in the backyard those couple of days, I had to throw out a lot of clusters that had shriveled on the vine. I waited too long. And as I was putting all that lost fruit in the garbage, 
I couldn't help but think about the urgency in Jesus' voice when he told his disciples, lift up your eyes, look at the fields. They are white for harvest. People are desperate. People are searching for life. People want what you have. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God at work in you. It is giving you life. It saves everyone who believes. If you were a doctor, would you be ashamed to tell people that you save lives? Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's saving lives. It is God making us right in his sight. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. So we aren't ashamed of the gospel. We talked about what the gospel is. We aren't ashamed of the gospel because we know it saves lives. And now we read further on, not only does it save lives, it makes us right in his sight. Without the gospel, we are wrong in his sight. We're doomed. We're dead. Hebrews 4. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same tests that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. He says, let us come boldly. Why? Because we will receive his mercy. We will encounter his grace. Don't be afraid. Fear means that you lack an understanding of God's love for you. Fear is what made Adam run away from God and stitch up a fruit of the looms to cover his buns. Fear is focused on you and on your inadequacies. Everything about the good news is shouting out that God loves you. God wants you. Trust him. Return to him. Come boldly, not because you are all that, but because Jesus is all that. And Jesus will always stand up for those who are not ashamed of him. Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Take a stand for Jesus, and he will take a stand for you. And that is precisely what Stephen saw and experienced when he was being persecuted and killed for his faith. Stephen was literally surrounded. He was caught in an impossible circumstance. Religious insanity, superstition, murderous hatred, prejudice, jealousy, an angry crowd with stones on every side. Death was drawing near. But looking up, Stephen saw Jesus. One look into the face of Jesus, and everything else was meaningless. Stones were cutting him. Stones were breaking his body. But they were harmless compared to the joy of what he was seeing. Stephen was captivated by Jesus, and he was rising above the worst that this world could throw at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven 
And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You see, Stephen took a stand for Jesus and Jesus took a stand for Stephen. And I believe that right now, Jesus is taking a stand for believers in Iraq and believers in Syria and other parts of the world who are doing the very same thing. Sometimes you and I, we think of persecution as being something that happened 2,000 years ago in a coliseum with lions and burning stakes. This is not the truth. Of the world's three greatest religions, Christians are the most persecuted today with 80% of all acts of religious discrimination directed at Christians. Salem Georges, 43 years old, Bartella, Iraq. He was pummeled to death last Monday in front of a church because he refused to convert to Islam. Islamic State militants had seized the that town last month, and on his way to the town center, he encountered an ISIS terrorist patrol in front of the Virgin Mary Church, and the patrol arrested him, and they tried to force him to convert, and he refused, and so they beat him to death, and they left his body in front of the church. And maybe you have seen some of the graphic images and videos of how our brothers and sisters are being persecuted. Christian families are being torn apart. Christian children are being sold as slaves and sexually abused. Many are being killed simply for believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And if somehow this podcast or a recording of this message makes it to someone in a part of the world where you are being persecuted. Calvary Christian Center wants you to know we will not fail to pray for you. We will not take for granted what has been taken from you. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of salvation to all who believe. Listen, I'm not here to condemn anyone today. If you have felt ashamed and you didn't speak up when you should have, if you lied about what you believe in or you just kind of brushed it aside or covered it up because it wasn't convenient, you aren't alone. Luke chapter 22. So they arrested Jesus and they led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. And the guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and they were sitting around it. And Peter joined them there. And a servant girl noticed him in the firelight and She began staring at him. And finally she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't even know him. And after a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I am not, Peter said. And about an hour later, someone else insisted, you know, this must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And at that moment, the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. And suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. 
before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. He was a disciple who had just hours before been willing to die for Jesus. And now in the light of persecution, he was denying that he even knew him. He was ashamed. After everything that he'd experienced, everything that he'd seen with his own eyes, everything that he had done with his own hands, he lied. He was ashamed. I remember one time I was in elementary school and I was talking with a little friend of mine, you know, in elementary school, you're young and you're first starting to think about girls as being something cute rather than icky. So he was talking to me about girls. And so we're walking towards the classroom and as we're walking, he mentioned a very pretty, very nice girl. And he asked, well, do you like her? And I was embarrassed, you know, and I was ashamed because I kind of did like her. And so I answered him very loudly and very angrily, no, I don't like her. And we turned the corner and turned the door into that room. And she was sitting right there in the class. She had come early. And she heard what I said. And I could see that it hurt her feelings. And I imagine that look that Jesus gave to Peter when Peter said, I don't even know what you're talking about. But Jesus is wonderful, and he doesn't leave it there. After he's crucified and he rises again, he meets the disciples for lunch at his favorite watering hole, the Sea of Galilee. And they're making a spectacular fish fry, and this is what happens. John 21. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Feed my lambs. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked the question a third time and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. You know, I don't think it was a coincidence that he asked Peter three times if he loved him because he wanted to cover up that memory of Peter denying him three times. The Bible doesn't say, but I could imagine that every morning when the sun rose and a rooster somewhere crowed, that Peter thought of that moment, that painful moment of denying Jesus. And he could see that look on Jesus' face. But because Jesus is merciful, every time that memory came up, he could also remember that fish fry. And he could hear the water crashing on the shore, and he could see the face of Jesus asking him again, Do you love me? You see, Jesus isn't a principle, he's a person. It's personal for him. Jesus is emotionally invested in you, and he takes it personally. Yes, he died for the sins of the world, 
But more than that, he died for my sins. He died for your sins. And he took away all of the wrong that I did. And he is asking each one of us, do you love me? I think it would be appropriate this morning if we all stood in his presence and told him that we love him.